Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you are a God of love. We thank you also that you are a God of words and a God of intellect. And in fact, you created our intellects to seek you. And Lord, sometimes we think we're doing that and we get led astray. So, Lord, we pray that you would um, just give my words the right amount of weight so that the folks that really need to take this in can take this in and the folks that are here to be amused can be amused. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so if we have our Bibles, while I call up my... I want you all to know something. You guys are in an incredible position this morning because you are going to be the recipients of my first PowerPoint presentation. I have managed to get to 2024 before I ever had to do this stuff. And thanks be to God that I have daughters, specifically uh, Emily, who are able to help me and say, in fact, the first word out of her mouth was, seriously? (laughs) (sighs) She's a tart one, that girl is. Seriously, you managed to get this far? So here's the idea behind uh, when Tim approached me and said, hey, would you like to do an adult education class? And I said, sure, anytime. I thought he was going to give me a topic. And he said, what do you want to do? I said, how about uh, going through different philosophical uh, schools and helping people understand like sometimes what they think is Christianity isn't. And uh, he said, so worldview. And I said, I don't like worldview. Don't like that word. Because that's, that, but that's the one that everybody, most evangelical Christians know what that word means. So let's just say that this is a worldview thing. And I like to call it Vain Thoughts 101. And we're going to go through, this will be week one, first week of four weeks. And you can't really, we're having to cherry pick. We're kind of bouncing from uh, lily pad to lily pad to lily pad to lily pad. In your mind, I want you to envision like a giant pond covered with lily pads. And that'll help you understand like we're just kind of, we're identifying ones that... uh, I think, based on my years in education, teaching grade six through 12 for the last 14 years, I had to do the math in my head, uh, that I think I'm seeing, because the kids, basically what's happening is the kids are coming in and what they don't realize, a lot of parents don't realize, is the kids are a reflection of the parents. And I don't mean necessarily in a kid's behavior because, you know, kids are kids. I mean like in the assumptions and the presuppositions that the kids bring to the class, right? And you see a lot of this stuff and you go, if you don't know the philosophy behind it, you don't know where it's coming from, you're like, how does a kid 
who's coming from Christian parents think that um, collectivism is something that is viable and will work, you know, to the degree that they have like the socialism is cool bumper sticker on the back of their car. And I know that sounds political and those, some of those philosophies have political permeations, but really a lot of it, what it goes back to is the vanity of the thoughts, the original presuppositions. Does that make sense? Is there anybody who's not tracking? <laughs> we'll get there. You'll get there? Am I making sense? It's a little early in the morning for me and I'm not allowed coffee anymore, so. Vain Thoughts 101, or how do these people come up with this stuff? All right, we're gonna go to the second slide, not the chart, but the one that says, but I am into. Great. So up here on the wall, you should see this, you know, really great quote from a really famous man, where he said, but I am into the intellectual thing. I went to college. I studied the great philosophers, Socrates. I studied, that's the way he says it, I studied Plato. You know, the I, you learn the important things. Next slide. Like if you're studying geology, which is all facts, as soon as you get out of school, you forget it all, you know? Next one. But because it's just numbers and things, but philosophy, you remember just enough to screw you up for the rest of your life. <laughs> from A Wild and Crazy Guy by Steve Martin. That is in, by no means an endorsement of Steve, all of Steve Martin's vast opus and body of work. But uh, <laughs> my first philosophy professor used to quote that all the time. Philosophy, remember just enough to screw you up for the rest of your life. Dr. Reginald McClellan was actually uh, very instrumental, and I don't think I'd be standing here if it wasn't for him because he literally made my brain hurt my first few years at Covenant College. He was the, he had just come from, oh, what's the big, RTS in uh, Mississippi or whatever, Texas? No, there was one in Mississippi there. Jackson, yeah. That's where he came from. He was teaching theology students and then he came and he was teaching freshmen in college and he didn't really tone anything down. So here we are coming from, you know, hey, Gibsonville High School, go Chiefs, you know, and he's like, I'm conversion, you know. <laughs> but uh, that gives you kind of an idea of what philosophy can do to you. And in fact, uh, let's turn in our Bibles to, is it Colossians, I think? I, I've been looking at so much stuff lately, I can't keep it all straight. I promise you next week will be better. Yeah, Colossians 2, 8 through 12, but pretty much verse 8. Oh, actually, we can go back to verse 6. So if you look at Colossians 2, you'll see uh, Paul's talking to the church in Colossae. And here he goes. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Verse 8, this is the one that we're going to pivot on. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. 
And then, of course, he goes for, and then there's the one that everybody remembers, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. And in, I think it's King James says vain philosophy is, uh, I believe, the term, which I think kind of emphasizes or makes the emphasis that Paul is trying to get to, which is, there are people, sometimes consciously and sometimes without real deliberation, who will posit things and they will say it assertively and you'll go, oh, that makes sense, yeah, sure. We're grooving with that, you know, like, um, oh, I had an example and it just went out of my head. All right, well. So this is what we're going to be doing if you go to the broad historical overview. And by next week, I'll download that app that you gave me so that we can, we can do this a little better. We have a broad historical overview. In fact, yeah, let's go ahead and look at that. So if you look at the broad historical overview, this is a chart that I came up with based on stuff that I got from other people. So if you don't agree with it, that's okay, because it's not some, from somebody who has a whole lot of authority and a PhD behind its name, it's just me. Um, we've got the history, then we got the status of nature, and we got the explanation. And this is kind of what our grid is going to be for the next few weeks. We have the history, and today we're going to focus mostly on the pre-Christians, and that's circa which means around 500 BC to circa 500 AD. So we're going to gallop through about a thousand years of philosophy in, what, 20, 25 minutes? And we call those the ancients. Now, a lot of what their presuppositions come from is it comes from how people viewed nature. And I know that, for example, uh, well, just pick somebody at random, Mr. Walrath. What's your view of nature? Don't look at the chart, just kind of blurt what you think. You think of nature as what? God's creation. God's creation, okay. So is nature itself divine? No. Why not? God created it. Right, but it's, it's not the creator. The creator is divine. Okay, good. See how he's different from the ancients, the pre-Christians? He said, what? Nature is a reflection of the divine? That's a little bit of what I said, yes. A little bit? Okay. It's okay if I put words in your that's, that's me walking alongside of you and helping you get there. Okay. So, nature, but see, your ancients, they see nature as divine. It's an animistic view. You look out and, oh, that tree. Ooh, there might be a nymph in that tree. Or... You know, Lewis was really good at taking that stuff when he was talking in, uh, to kids in uh, the Chronicles of Narnia, right? In Narnia, you have nymphs, you have dryads, you have all of these things uh, that he got from ancient mythology. Nature is divine, that's an animistic view, and nature is full of gods. In fact, Thales, the guy that comes up with the earth, wind, fire and water, right, the four basic elements. He said nature is full of gods. A lot of times Greeks would say gods. They don't actually necessarily mean like 
a god like a deity. They just mean something that they can't really define that's not completely natural in the sense that it doesn't come from, they know it comes from somewhere else. You gotta love those Greeks, right? And uh, nature is perfect and eternal in the heavenly realm. So yeah, nature now, you know, your crops might fail because of a blight or a drought, but nature in and of itself is perfect. And it's out there somewhere. And if we can only just find it, right? Shades of a Subaru commercial, right? <laughs> then you have, or was it Jeeps? No, Jeeps like to tear up, the, you know, they like to throw mud. Subarus like to slide through it. All right. Christian, that's our next grid for history. And that's Circa, we're kind of picking up with the 500 AD. 500 AD, uh, let's see, uh, Augustus, to give you a perspective, Augustine died somewhere around 450, so about that time. Christian, it's Circa 500 AD to Circa 500, 1500, sorry, which is, you know, 95 Thesis was when? 1517, good, so about that time. That's your, that's your medieval. You're like, well, I don't think of Luther as medieval. Well, you can think that. <laughs> I won't argue with you, but you're wrong. No, nature is sacrament. That's the sacramental view. That's more uh, what our friend Mr. Walrath was talking about. Nature is not divine in and of itself, but is a reflection of God's nature. And nature is neither divine nor eternal, but a product of divine activity, like a sacrament creation reveals and conceals God, right? Reveals in the sense of, oh, the flower is opening, it's beautiful, right? Conceals in the sense of, oh, that's a really big wave coming this way, and I don't understand why, you know? And then we've got where, well, actually, technically, we probably don't even live in a post-Christian. We probably live in a post-post-Christian. I said that to a class once, and they went, what? Is that even possible? <laughs> I said, I'm just trying to help you understand we're even further away from what you think we should have as opposed to what we do have. Post-Christian, that's uh, 1,500 to today. That's your modern or post-modern era. That's nature is raw material. We're very materialistic. We look out at an acre and we say, how can we develop it? How can we use it? How can we utilize it? What's underneath it? What's over top of it? What are the boundaries? Uh, let's do a study to make sure that there isn't anything endangered or precious on it so we don't turn it into, you know, something and, and the people sue us and we have to Pay lots of money. So nature is raw material or materialistic. Nature has no spiritual status. It's just raw material or energy to be used for man's relief. You could thank uh, Francis Bacon for that. Because uh, that's, and he wrote late 1500s, early 1600s. So you can see how the post-Christian actually it's not, a, it's not like they wake up one morning and they're on one side of the bed and they're Christian and then they, in medieval, and they wake up on the other side of the bed the next morning, and they go, oh, I'm post-Christian. You know, it's not like that. It's a process. It happens over time. And it'd be interesting to see 50 to 100 years from now, if the Lord tarries, what people would say about where we are right now. Mm -hmm. Of course,
course, all they'd have to do is archive through all people's Twitters stuff and then so uh, if we go to the slide that would say so how do you there it is somebody want to read that for us might be helpful so how do you get to a postmodern post-christian western society when you started off with a bunch of pagan Greeks who despite their many errors and faults at least believe and then we go to the next slide yeah uh, you have, yeah, I'll, I'll, I can do that one. Thank you. Pythagoras of Samos. He was the one that was attributed as believing that mathematics was a matter of the soul. So if you, and in the case of the Greeks, when you talk about the soul, there is an eternity, right? There's something after death, okay? Something will keep going. It won't be your body, but something, that pneumos, that soul, that's going to keep going. Can we acknowledge that? Greeks did. We acknowledge that, right? So there's that little germ, right? That little, they were pagans, they were messed up, but they had just a little bit of, what does Calvin call it? Um, Divine spark. I was going to say common grace, but, right? Divine spark. Yeah, good. So let's go to the next one. And then you had Heraclitus, or Heraclitus. I, lo I love him. Students do that. He's the guy who said you cannot step into the same river twice. All things flow. In other words, there's a process. There's a some kind of some kind of logical progression. He couldn't quite put his thumb on it, but he's like, this isn't this isn't random. This isn't chaos. There's something going on, right? And yet there is a unity to reality, and he referred to it as a logos. And that's not Jesus, that's not Christ yet, but it is something. We're getting those steps, right? And this isn't kind of, and, and here's the thing, I, with all due respect to my multicultural friends, they will say things like, oh, well, that comes from Persia, or oh, that came from Egypt, or oh, that came from Africa, or oh, that came from India. And no, it didn't. Um, these are Greeks. They were uh, the product that is very unique. I don't know how many, anybody been to Greece? I haven't. I haven't had that privilege. Greece is kind of dry, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. On one hand, it's kind of up and down, right? I mean, it's, it's not flat. And Edith Hamilton, that great, great author, she talks about how there's just something about the nature of the terrain. These people were very, uh, they had to be independent. They had to think for themselves. They, had to, they couldn't rely on the guy in the next valley because, you know, he might be a different city-state. So, and yet, somehow, these Greeks, they're coming up with these things that are precursors or reflections. And, of course, they had trade with, you know, Palestine. So it's not like these things were happening in a vacuum. But at the same time, for Heraclitus to kind of figure out that he wanted to call that unity to reality. There's all of these different things. The one, there's a many, but there's some kind of one that's uniting all of this stuff, all of these physical phenomena that are happening. And so he called that the Logos. I'll go to the next slide. 
So as we can see, these ideas flowed and ebbed and in reaction to the, these ideas in Athens, though they weren't all Athenians, there were these guys called the Sophists. They started to teach something different. So you have this progression where, oh, there's a, there's a fluidity, there's a soul, there's a pneumos, there's a logos, there's something tying all this around. And anytime you start to get a bunch of people coming to some kind of consensus in philosophy, there's these guys that want to be the counter-cultural people. They want to be the, the gadflies. They want to be the people that are, that are like, oh, that's not right, right? And the first big group that gets any kind of notoriety and actually appears in history over and over and over again in different permeations are the sophists. And the key ideas of the sophists, and sophists were called those who preferred to be wise, but as you'll see, um, you're going to recognize them even if you don't know them. Go to the next slide, please. They would assert things like this. Number one, justice is a concept for weak-minded people who cannot assert themselves strongly enough. <laughs> you gotta push, you gotta fight, you gotta get what you want, you gotta go out there and grab it. You gotta go for it. And if they get in your way, that's just too bad. You gotta smash them, you gotta crush them, you gotta slide them aside. How do you do that? Well, we'll get into that in a minute. Nobility. <laughs> what? Considering that they were the teachers of the nobility, this yeah, sort of sense yeah. Well, in a way, they're doing the what? They're pandering they're, to the crowd. They're pandering to the crowd. Thank you. I was going to say playing to the seats, but yeah, there you go. Man is the measure of all things. Protagoras, he's like he's the guy that's you know, hey, humanism. That's where we get the first. Well, I don't think the first glimmerings of humanism. We get the first glimmerings of humanism in the garden, but as far as uh, that as a perspective, you know, hey, mankind is perfectible. Mankind is, this is it. This is it. Let's build, let's do statues of ourselves. Different poses. Let's get the, <laughs> let's get the discus guy going, you know, discobolus. Those kinds of things. Man is the measure of all things. Next slide. Uh, yeah, they also said things like objective truth is impossible. And of course, that's insane. That's outrageous. We've never heard that before. Ever. Or did we hear it before we came here, right? Objective truth is impossible. And then this one, you got to love this one, right? When Gorgias said all statements are false. Including <laughs> us. And, and, then, and then Socrates is like, wait a minute. Uh, I don't know if you thought that one through. <laughs> Excuse me. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Which is where I think Steve Martin got the, well, excuse. No, I'm just kidding. That's not where he got it. All right. So all statements are false. And these are, uh, these are all available. I know that Mr. Smoley, because his mother loves Gorgias, right? As she reminded me three times this past week. Uh, some of you all have actually read this and suffered through it. And for that, you should be commended. For the rest of you, why haven't you read Greek philosophy? <laughs> You're like, well, I keep a copy of Solzhenitsyn next to my bed, and that helps me to get to sleep. Or I'm sorry, Solzhenitsyn, that's the wrong Russian. Dostoevsky, he will put you to sleep, yes. All right, next one. So in reaction to the sophists and the spread of their ideas among the Athenians, Socrates, or as our friend Mr. Martin says, Socrates, 
uh, believed that the death of truth would mean the death of virtue and that the death of virtue would spell the death of civilization. And that's a quote from Marcy Sproul. And I would like to strongly recommend, if you are not into reading the Greeks on your own, I would strongly recommend, I'm not a R.C. Sproul shill, but of course he's dead, so he wouldn't care. The Consequences of Ideas. See this book? See how thin this is? And yet, he explains in a very accessible way a lot of what we're going to be talking about. In fact, even more than what we're going to be talking about. So if you haven't picked this up, or if you've got a tinkling or an interest or just a little bug in the back of the brain, R.C. Sproul, Consequences of Ideas, or The Consequences of Ideas. We use this as a textbook in our uh, upper school. And, hmm? If you don't like reading, he has it as a video series. Oh, he does? Chalkboard. Yes. All right. <laughs> oh, if you... Have any of you seen his, one of his people, Gerstner? Do you remember the, who was here when we used to show the Gerstner videos? Probably us. <laughs> we used to show the Gerstner videos. That guy would break chalk like every, every four, every four words. He's like, ah, rah, 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 rah. <laughs> Those guys spent a fortune in chalk. But, you know, and then they had, they had the chalkboards that, y'all remember the ones that actually flip? Old school, those of you who are younger than then or weren't born till the 90s might have a problem with understanding what we're saying. But anyway, so any questions? Let me stop. Any questions so far? Tracking? Making sense? All right. And then uh, what was at the core of this philosophical debate was whether objective truth was possible and some very good rhetoricians were arguing that it was not. And if you don't have objective truth, well, can anybody think of the, some of the things that can happen if you don't have objective truth? Mr. Smalley? You let morals be guided by whatever civilization wants. Or even what? Even what you want, right? Get that will to power thing going that we're going to go over in a week or so. Anybody, any other things? Properly, there's actually two questions here. One, is there an objective truth, and how do you know that what you see is objective truth? Yeah, I wasn't trying to get that deep, but yeah. <laughs> Did everybody hear what our friend said? No. Could you say it a little louder? So, properly, this is two questions. One, is there objective truth? And two, how do you know that what you think is objective truth is actually objective truth? <laughs> uh huh. <laughs> Perfect for Sunday morning, right? You're like, oh, I was just going to come here about the Bible. Why do you want to hear about objective truth? But you see how easy it is? And that's why, that's part of the reason I wanted to do this. I wanted to, I wanted to go through it so that we could see, and maybe, help, hopefully, the idea is maybe we come away from this having thought about it a little bit. We can, well, I'm just kind of skipping ahead, but kind of say, well, what preconceptions do I have? Right? What have I taken in and assumed and glommed on to my, my personal view of the world that maybe 
I should challenge and look at. Maybe, maybe it's there for a reason. Maybe it shouldn't be there, you know. Is there anybody here who would argue that there is no such thing as an objective truth? It's okay if you do. I'll just unleash this guy on you. <laughs> All right, good. Next slide. Now, here's something that you have to understand because context is important. So to these Greeks in this time, the polis, your city-state, was everything. And in Socrates' mind, anything, well, and actually in all of their minds usually, anything that threatened the, the unity of the polis was bad. So when Socrates engages these guys, he's not just being, uh, he wasn't out there to be a jerk, though in the dialogues he comes across as one sometimes. He's out there because his at the core of his being, he loves his city-state, which was Athens. And at the time these men were having these discussions, Athens was, had gone through a series where they, Athens and other Greek city-states had been attacked by the Persians and had been at war with the Persians. And then it turned around and because they were Greeks, once they sort of got the Persians at bay and realized they weren't a threat anymore, they started going after each other because that's what you do, right? Cycle of human history over and over and over again. Oh, we don't have anybody to fight, so let's fight each other. Yeah. Yeah. So Socrates is struggling against the sophists. Next slide. And you can see the dates there. And so Socrates, rank pagan that he was, stood up for the existence of objective truth. He argued that it did exist, and he argued that you could know it. And he did this using what we now call the Socratic Dialogue, which is basically him asking people to, next slide. He didn't do anything particularly fancy. He simply made his peers define their terms and use logic to reach conclusions based on what was known. Could we agree with that approach? Would we as Christians agree with that approach to get to the truth? Not a trick. What? Partly in Partly. With the scriptures. Right. So we believe reason in what? Hey, scripture. Revealed truth. Reason in revelation. Yeah, revealed truth. Right. That's kind of how we look at it. These guys, revelation was something that you got when you went to the place where the, what was her name? Delphi, yeah, the oracle of Delphi, yeah. Let's go breathe some sulfur and some other stuff that's coming out of the earth and have a vision, an ecstatic vision. And if it makes sense, great. And if it doesn't make sense, it's just because we don't understand it yet. The wooden walls will save you. Oh, let's go hold up at the Acropolis because it's got wooden walls. The Persians, you know, knock it down. They're like, well, wait a minute. Those weren't the wooden walls we were talking about. Our ships are made out of wood. It's our ships. <laughs> See, the oracle was right. We just didn't get it. Just got to keep trying. So they used logic to reach conclusions based on what was known. Next slide, please. And Socrates was pretty good at it, though, to actually read some of the dialogues recorded by one of his students, which is <laughs> Plato, not Plato, is enough to drive you nuts. 
at least the first few times I tried it, and then I had somebody actually help me through it. And, uh, I highly recommend it. If you haven't done at least one Socratic, one of Plato's uh, dialogues, you need to do one of them. Um, here's a little light reading. I brought this one. This is the Republic. Actually, it's pretty accessible, at least the way Bloom write, uh, translates. All right, so any questions? No? Some of you are looking skeptical. Got some dubious looks here. Try not to read into that, but sometimes you can. Should I keep going? All right, I got a little more. All right, so let's flip. Socrates eventually made enough powerful people upset in Athens that there was a trial, and when given the choice between exile and death, Socrates chose death because the polis is everything. I don't want to leave my city-state, Athens, so if you try to kick me out to save my life, I will take a very, what we would call now a stoic approach, and I will drink something that makes me sick and kills me. Hemlock, I believe it was the drink of choice. Next slide. Socrates' legacy continued on with his student Plato. Plato's basic contributions to Western philosophy. These are just a few. I'm cherry picking. Remember I said lily pads? So now it's a lily pad with little lily pads inside of it. So we're going to hop around. One, Plato stated that ideas were real. <laughs> but of course, what he meant by real is something else. Plato believed that knowledge didn't come from experience, but from reason. Ideas are real, and they are also innate. In other words, you are born with ideas in your head. You may not be able to articulate them when you're a baby, but you have these ideas in your head. Keep going. Example, you don't know music because you took a music appreciation class. You know music because the idea of music was already in your soul. You're born with it. Keep going. Plato had a philosophy school he called the Academy, and one of his students would go on to dominate philosophy for the next thousand years or so. So we're kind of doing a really broad brush, quick and dirty sort of thing with Plato, but Plato himself is worth, you know, four weeks all by himself. So next slide. And that's Aristotle. I have a mostly love, some hate relationship with this guy. Aristotle, he's the master of those who know. That's what Dante called him. And I think Dante had something there. He was born in Thrace, so he was not an Athenian himself. He was Plato, Plato's, I did it, Plato's student at the academy for 20 years. Plato wanted Aristotle to take over, but Aristotle refused, mostly because Aristotle's views, after 20 years of working with Plato, developed somewhat differently. And the beautiful thing is, they didn't try to crush each other. Plato's like, hey, why don't you take over? Aristotle's like, no, brother, I, I, I gotta move on. I gotta find another gig. So flip the slide. And the other, one of the other gigs, which we can all thank Aristotle for, unleashing this on the world. In 342 BC, Aristotle was hired as a tutor to the king of, to the son of the king, Philip, son of King Philip II of Macedon. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I know. I do speak normally, and I usually speak really well, but not today. Mastodon, a boy named Alexander. This is the guy that will, yes, eventually become Alexander the Great. 
one of the greatest tyrants in the history of the world. In 334 BC, Aristotle was back in Athens and he started his own school, but he didn't call it the Academy. He called it the Lyceum. And since he taught as he walked, it was also called the Peripatetic School. Peripatetic meaning, you know, we walk. Keep going. He wrote works about many subjects. Aristotle's body of work is huge, right? Quote someone. He metaphysics, the Nicomachean Ethics, which he wrote to his son. Physics, poetics, politics, the organon, which is about logic, not about your organs. Keep going. Among Aristotle's many contributions to civilization and the history of thought. He's not the first person to use logic. He's one of the first people to put it in some sort of formal structure. And that's the formal logic used for science from scientia, which means knowledge. Aristotle's logic measured whether arguments were valid or invalid. He wasn't concerned about true or false. He was concerned about valid or invalid. Does your conclusion follow from the syllogism and the premises that you presented? Keep going. He also gives us the law of non-contradiction, which is extremely important and is pretty much forgotten in the United States of 2024. A cannot be A and non-A at the same time and in the same relationship. <laughs> Anything else would be madness or illogical. Next. Ideas involve words. If you can't express it, do you really know what it is? Nominalism. Keep going. All substances are combinations of form and matter. If it's a substance, it has a form, but it also has matter. And of course, we as Christians care about that because we have form because we matter to the one who created matter. Wow, that came out well. Okay, keep going. <laughs> and then we have the four causes, which if you've never been excruciatingly introduced to this as a middle school child, you missed out. A, formal cause, that which determines what a thing is. B, the material cause, that out of which a thing is made. C, efficient cause, that by which a thing is made. And D, final cause, that for which a thing is made, its purpose. Let me see if I can do this. Formal cause, that which determines what a thing is. The sculptor is going to make a sculpture. He's the one, he's the one, he's the formal cause. Material cause, that out of which a thing is made, so we're making a sculpture. What's the material cause? If we're talking ancient Greek, it'll be uh, what? Marble, right, it'd be marble, good. The efficient cause that by which a thing is made is the sculpture, the sculptor himself. And then the final cause, you were, you were trying to see if I remember, didn't you? <laughs> final cause, that for which a thing is made its purpose. The sculpture is made for beauty, admiration, or in some cases a commission, right? Okay, good. Next. And of course, the prima mobile, or the prima mobile, the unmoved mover, 
which Aristotle called God, but not in the sense that we would think like Zeus or Hermes or something like that, just God like, it's something big, it's something I don't know, I'm gonna stick the label God on it, right? Not of any particular pietistic or theistic approach. Keep going. Aristotle had an immeasurable influence on everything that came after him. Scientists still, whether they realize it or not, if they're formal sciences, they still use things that he laid out thousands of years ago. But most particularly the Middle Ages period, the, what we call in our, what I call in my arbitrary grid, the Christian era. I mean, if you've ever read Aquinas, which I suspect some of you have, Aristotle was a huge influence on him, and also on Bothius, which I really like Bothius. Keep going. We're going to leap. So before we leap to Galileo, any questions? Galileo. Galileo. All right, Galileo, circa 1564 to 1642 A.D. We're now in the Anno Domini years. When Galileo ground his lenses and made a telescope and began making charts of the stars and maps, he confirmed what Copernicus and Kepler had also realized that the Earth moved and actually revolved around the Sun, not the other way around, as stated by Ptolemy and Aristotle. So we begin to have a break, and we begin to move from, and in Galileo's case, we're moving from the ancients and jumping the medieval approach entirely, and we're moving into the modern. Next slide, please. And of course, once you do that, skepticism makes a big comeback. Because we had a structure, the earth was fixed, the church said it was fixed, everything was working, everything's harmony, there's a place for everything, there's a, everything has a place. And then Galileo, without really trying to undermine anybody, I mean, he's just stating what he's seeing, then he gets a little stubborn about it. That starts other folks thinking, well, well, that's wrong. If what we believed is wrong, is wrong about that, if they were incorrect about that, what else might they be wrong about? They, in this case, mostly being the, the church, right? Which, of course, is very helpful for unity and integrity, right? All right, next slide. But Galileo didn't just do all this he didn't, none of this happens in a vacuum, but of course it's never just one person. Descartes, who believed in God, and said he did, 1596 to 1650, he was a mathematician. He's the one that we know, because everybody knows about cogito ergo sum, which is what? I think, I think therefore I am. All right, next slide, please. He also said in his rules for the direction of the mind that the following four rules should be applied by people to understand so that they can actually get to truth and understand objective truth. First, he agreed that objective truth was possible, but he said, this is how you got to get to it. This is what I found that works for me. And let's be clear, Descartes was, when he shared this stuff, he's always, he always qualifies it. He's one of the few philosophers who ever says, he doesn't say this, he actually says, this may not work for everybody, but this is what works for me. 
He's not trying to force this on people. He's just sharing what he's got, okay? Which I thought was pretty humble of him. Even though he... Well, anyway. Number one, accept nothing is true that is not self-evident. Next. Divide problems into their simplest parts. Three, solve problems by proceeding from simple to complex. And four, recheck your reasoning. What does that sound like? Basic principles of engineering. Basic principles of engineering. Well, remember Descartes was a mathematician, and so he's coming at it from a mathematical <laughs> and quite logical mind, right? This gets added into, uh, in fact, they teach, the room next door, I actually heard one of my peers going through uh, the procedures for a lab for her science class. Shock, here it is, right? It's what they're doing. Next. So Descartes puts that out there, and everybody's like, oh, thank you, Descartes. Meanwhile, there's another fella who's not French, but English, John Locke, 1632 to 1704. He's been thinking about these things. He's been reading all this other stuff. He's had a classical education, and he's coming up with stuff that's gonna kind of wiggle us a little bit into the modern, more into the modern. In his essay concerning human understanding, which was published first in 1690, and read quite widely. He was quite popular. He wasn't a, quite a rock star, but he was definitely a personality. Number one, humans are born without innate ideas or knowledge. They are born essentially as tabula rasa or blank slates. Now, what have we heard from the people that have gone previously? You're born with ideas. You're born with ideas. Locke says, no, no, you're not. Next. And he says, and because you're not, you learn from sensation and from experience. You touch something that's hot, you go, oh, don't want to touch that, right? And then that sensation that you felt becomes part of your experience. And so basically, instead of saying, oh, I can rely on what other people have said, you're, Locke's basically going, yeah, it's all, it's all you, babe. You got to figure this out. That's the logical conclusion from some of what he's saying. Number three. We cannot know the real essences of things. Ron might be Ron, but he might also be an alien in disguise. We don't know, right? And next. Truth is that which corresponds to reality. So your reality is where you get truth, right? Lanning's reality might be a little different than mine. This truth might be just slightly different. God exists, but is known through logic and observed reality. This revelation stuff out of the Bible, I don't know. Not the book revelation, but just the whole idea that it's revealed. Next. And so here we have our questions for next week. Write these down. It's homework. Or take a picture. Yeah. What am I saying? I only just barely joined the 20th century. <laughs> yeah, it blows my mind. What role does faith play in your observed reality? And do you see sophism, skepticism, and nominalism in your day-to-day -day life? I'm not talking about in you, though you might. I'm talking about just as you go around day-to-day, -day, go to 7-Eleven, go to Target, watch whatever you watch, hear whatever you hear, listen to 
Taylor Swift on your radio. Because, you know, she's in everything now. She's like microplastics, right? <laughs> Wrap it up, time to break. And for those of you that might come back next week, we'll talk more about other things. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you that it's beautiful and it's not raining. We know that you bring the rain and the sun, but uh, it's nice to see the sun. We appreciate you, Lord, because you are our God and you have us in the palm of your hand. And everything through you is, it makes sense. Not because we make it make sense, but because we know we can trust you and that you do things for our good and for your glory. And when we put your glory first, life is just a lot easier, at least in most ways. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.